Hello, this is Karen Strassman. Oh, hi. It's good to see you. Welcome to Corpse Run Radio. Children of the grave, heed my call. Come and join me or feel my wrath. For we are the forsaken. I am your queen and this is Corpse Run Radio. This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken, are the Forsaken. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 102 of Corpse Run Radio. First of all, and the reason why this episode is called what it is called, Happy Birthday Juno. The creator of this podcast, I hope you had a great day since this episode will come out I think two days after your actual birthday. So technically it's a belated birthday wish, but regardless... Happy birthday, Juno, and thank you for everything that you've done for Corpse Run Radio. We miss you greatly. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, downloading, streaming, however you consume the content that we bring to you. Thank you very much. Today is the last episode of Corpse Run Radio before WoW Classic launches. Why am I saying this? Because the next episode, episode 103, will be a classic-focused episode where I will try to put as much information about World of Warcraft Classic, World of Warcraft Vanilla in of itself, into the episode to prepare you for the experience that is playing the WoW Classic game. Obviously, the expectations from people vary. If you played vanilla, you kind of know what to expect, but there are things that have been, I don't know how to put this, diluted by time passing, expectations that derive from memories that you thought you had, but that were really memories or thoughts that happened and came into being between vanilla and present day, and they're still not correct. I remember there are quite a few things that I thought were true or were a thing in vanilla. I had to walk back that assumption because I just was mistaken. So sometimes your minds play tricks on you. Sometimes there are things that you totally forgot are a thing. Even though you thought you played vanilla for years and you knew everything. But again, it's been 13 years since we stopped playing vanilla in the version that we get to play as Classic WoW now. 
So there are bound to be things that you misremember to use that term. I think that's the best one. In any case, I just wanted to say this up front. There is not going to be anything, like I mentioned in the last episode, there is not going to be any classic WoW-related content, except for the historical lore facts that is linked to vanilla slash classic. All of that will happen in episode 103. With that said, let's get on with episode 102. And let us begin with the contrary of the beginning of World of Warcraft. And that is Soul So Breezy's Deciphering Warcraft's Endgame, Light, Void, and the Proxy War. Here is Soul So Breezy. Hey, it's all with another video brought to you by the very exceptional people that allow me to continue bringing you World of Warcraft coverage. With that out of the way, you better close your curtains and lock your doors. Because those peddlers of the holy light are gonna try to make you an offer that you might find hard to refuse. In recent years, the story of Warcraft has made noticeable shifts in what it eyes as a villain. In its earliest days, there well, there was no villain. There was just orcs versus humans, and they wanted to kill each other. But over 25 years of franchise history, the world of Warcraft grew well beyond Azeroth and into an entire universe. From it, the foundation of this great dark beyond was assembled. Here we have the collection of great powers of the known universe and the representatives who wield its powers. Central to that is what I'm going to call the original conflict, this collision of light and void energies that make everything that we see today, from the titans, to the elemental powers, to the planets that we visit, the races that we play, and the loot that still refuses to drop. When we consider the passage of time in the Warcraft universe, at least on a cosmic scale, you know, like millions, billions of years, the conflicts of what we've observed uh, in, in the franchise so far seem really insignificant in comparison. But when you connect the dots, you take a look at every path taken, every battle, all of these points can eventually connect, you know, at, at, after a number of degrees to this original conflict. And yet, from what we as consumers of content experience throughout the games and the comics, the novels, uh, the movie, the swag and all that, we've only really been exposed to one side of the story, the Void. We already know that the Void wants to consume the Great Dark Beyond, like whatever that means. It chucked old gods into planets in order to spread its corruption. It wants to turn everything into nothing. That's the end game. Using a nascent or a sleeping or a baby titan is one way to meet that goal, or it's the method in which to really make that happen. But regardless, the void, they're, they're bad news. As players, as champions of Azeroth, we would love to think ourselves as so important that the final story of Warcraft is going to be us versus the threat of the looming void. But that's not the original conflict. The original conflict, well, the Chronicle didn't start with us. It started with this light versus void thing. And yet there's, at least at present, there is no equivalent to 
like a light version of the Void Lords, the Old Gods, or the Etceteras. At least, kind of. So we're going to explore that idea, but this video isn't meant to reveal <gasps> the hidden truth uh, or, or piece together this really clever narrative that's going to blow your mind. I'm much too droll for that. But I'm going to take a stab at what I think Blizzard is trying to do with this whole void slash light arc. I'm going to line up with little information that we have when it comes to the possible end game for the light and then what might happen in this upcoming patch. It's not a huge thing, but it's just something to think about. And this will be fun because in a few short weeks, we'll find out just how wrong I am after all the data mining. Ooh, I can't wait. But first, let's talk about a different story that you might be familiar with. It's a story that takes place in freaking space about a space station named Babylon 5. It's a pretty decent show if you're into aliens and funny hair and all that jazz. A very big chunk of Babylon 5 story features the conflict between two ancient races. One of the races is referred to as the Shadows, these spider-like, well, they're inky and scary and they're shadowy. The other race is called the Vorlon. They're mysterious, wise, they have crazy technology, and they're, they're equal in power to the Shadows. Once upon a time, these two races gave themselves the job to guide the growth of their galaxy. But over time, they had different views on how to go about it. The Shadows believed in survival of the fittest, initiate chaos, conflict, and strife, add a little bit of suffering too. Whatever survives the aftermath is something stronger, greater than what it once was. Uh, social Darwinism, if you will. By contrast, the Vorlons believed in order and education. With close instruction and development of the young races, the Vorlons would mold them into thriving civilizations. The disagreement between the Shadows and Vorlons as to which way was better turned into a violent conflict. But it wasn't a direct confrontation between these powerful and destructive races. Instead, they fought wars by proxy, manipulating the younger, developing races that were loyal to them to fight their battles for them. It's like parents pitting their children against each other in some sport, and whoever came out the winner would prove that parent right. There are some pretty strong parallels to draw from here, like it's pretty overt. In Babylon 5, most of these younger races, they side with the Vorlons, and they call themselves the Army of Light. This idea of a proxy war is not an uncommon story trope, and I strongly believe that Blizzard is starting to push for this to become the long-term theme of the Warcraft story, at least on the cosmic level. The Shadows are basically the Void, who embrace all truths and incite chaos. In the end, one of those truths may end up right, and that's a win for them. The Vorlons would be like the Light, who embrace order and, more importantly, obedience. They thrive on destiny or prophecy, but they work directly into making that happen, so hey, the prophecy came true. So if this is in fact true when the story is going in this direction, uh, Blizzard has been playing catch-up. They're trying to create dots and then connect them into a coherent thread. Uh, by contrast, the story of Babylon 5 already had its story planned out from start to finish, but we're just comparing a TV show to a video game, so it kind of stops there. But Blizzard does have its work cut out for it when it comes to evening the playing field between the light and the void presence, considering all the lore that's already been established with the Void and the Old Gods. There's considerably less to show about the Light's presence and influence in the world, but it's starting to come together. 
By now we all know the story of Zira, the prime Naru who had clear intentions to turn Illidan into a warrior of the light, whether he wanted to or not. Even though that didn't turn out to be successful, it revealed a side of the Naru that we haven't seen, one that exercises obedience through force. We've seen small demonstrations of savagery from the Lightforge Draenei, although that only furthers the point that the Light, like any of the other powers, is a force to be wielded. But similar to the elements, it requires a certain relationship, and in this case, it's faith in the Light. Otherwise, if only morally good people could use the Light, then you wouldn't have a Scarlet Crusade. I should also both address and dismiss the visions that Alaria Windrunner received in the Thousand Years of War narrative. They sound compelling, maybe outright frightening, but from the reading, they're just the visions that were put into Alaria's head by the Void. These visions illustrate the possibility of what the Light is capable of, but it's not you know, actual visual proof of its intentions. At present, the most clear display of the Light being as aggressive and fanatical as the Void comes from Exarch Urel, who is the leader of the Lightbound. I would describe the situation, but instead I'm just going to read from an item that we receive in-game called the Sermon of the High Exarch. And no, you're not getting an accent. Brothers and sisters, decades have passed since the last vestiges of the Legion were driven from Draenor. We could not have accomplished this noble undertaking without the help of the Orc clans, united as the Maghar. Our fondest wish is for all the people of Draenor to remain unified in purpose. Sadly, this dream is not shared by all by those who once stood beside us. Many noble orcs have embraced the light. Exarch Hellscream has been an example for his people to follow. Yet sadly, his own father resists the true path. I believe with all my heart that the Maghar are destined to join us as servants of the light. But first, they must be taught to trust the Naru as we do. The Light Mother has blessed me with visions. I know that one day the Army of the Light will march across the Great Dark Beyond and bring order to countless worlds. That bold future begins here, with us. We must make Draenor whole again. I call upon you all to ensure that the future promised by the Light Mother is fulfilled. Purge the infection that prevents Draenor's heart from being whole. The Light will forge a new future for the Orcs. But first, we must save the Maghar from themselves. No more division. No more defiance. In the light, we shall be one. I don't know about you, but this kind of comes off as pretty crazy. I'll read off a couple of key phrases that set off a few flags like uh, True Path, Servants of the Light, uh, Trust the Naru, Visions, Bringing Order to Countless Worlds, Purge the Infection, Save the Maghar from Themselves, and you know the rest of it too. This doesn't read as the kind of inspirational speech that encourages dialogue and understanding. It's basically, they're wrong, we're right, let's get fired up and really show them how right we are. Also, the Lightbound demonstrate a certain power called Blessing of Eternity during this Maghar campaign, which helps support the idea of crystallizing entire worlds or civilizations. You're not alive, you're not dead, you're just still. This is some very weak speculation of mine, I'm, it's coming from like nothing, but should we be at all surprised if one day Yarel and her Lightbound were to make an actual appearance on Azeroth? Like, what if they were to pull an Iron Horde and they rebuilt the Dark Portal once again? I mean, it started off as what, I think like green and then it turned red and then I guess in this case it would turn 
yellow. And the fanatical lightbound would just start steamrolling through with their Draenei war machines. And they would be on this Radiance Crusade to purge Azeroth of its impurities, which is like, which is like all of us, come on, <laughs> not all of us are very pure. But the notion of this, the Army of the Lights coming to get us, that's not so far-fetched. Most currently, with Patch 825 of Battle for Azeroth looming closer, we're now seeing the latest game piece entering the board, the reanimated corpse of Kalia Menethil. But Kalia herself may not be the problem. There's probably absolutely nothing inherently wrong with her, apart from being the living dead, of course. I believe in her good intentions. I believe that she believes in the warmth of the light and the good that it does. She believes in the messaging. It's possible, but I have doubts that she's going to suddenly turn heel and consume all of Stormwind in holy fire in an effort to purge the non-believers. Unlike Yurel, who's been spreading the word and aggressively converting people to her side, Kalia only needs to play a certain role, a symbol of faith. Imagine Kalia being presented to the people, like, Gaze upon her, a queen befell by tragedy, with a corrupted brother, her kingdom lost, and then, while in service of the light, one blackened arrow to the heart made her a victim of the Banshee Queen during what should have been a moment of joy. And yet the light blessed her with renewed life, a gift, a reward for her unwavering faith in the light. It's faith, not necromancy or dark magic that will defeat death. She is faith given form. Faith can win this war and bring back your loved ones. All you need to do is pledge yourself fully to the light, and it will save you from darkness and protect you from a final fate. That's a heck of a sell, right? There are loreheads among us who wonder if the light just straight up controls people's minds. We've read that the light has been used to ease doubts and to instill courage into troubled minds. We can sort of kind of twist that around too and say that the light can lower our mental guards and condition our behavior, especially if you're exposed to a power like that on a long-term consistent basis, for, you know, kind of like Urel, kind of like Kalia. What we still don't know is how exactly the forces of light purify worlds. We can't fully rely on the visions of the void, and there's not enough information about AU Draenor other than the planet drying up. It is possible that Draenor's desiccation is part of this process that will eventually crystallize the planet in a sort of stasis, but that's a total guess. It just wouldn't surprise me that for all the tentacle void planets that we see out there, there are an almost equal number of crystallized golden planets out there. It's just that both of them are equally uninhabitable. Something to speculate on though would be the actual endgame for the light. The Void seeks to corrupt Azeroth, the last known titan before it awakens. A corrupted titan infused with Void energy is, well, there's supposedly an unstoppable force that will remake the Great Dark Beyond into the Void's image, which is like we're screwed, basically. And we know that this is a real threat, considering that the old gods keep trying to break into the Chamber of Hearts. If the forces of the Light, notably the Naru, if they seek the same goal, then they're being really, really chill about it. But that could be their little deception as well, having the same objective as the Void, but having an entirely different approach. Because let's say that the World Soul is in fact the objective for both parties. Nazoth and the other minions of the Void are plainly acting as an antagonist. They're flying against the values of the citizens of Azeroth. They're using force and deception to break its way in. The Naru, though, 
Well, they're trying to play the role of the good guy. They're the benevolent force. They're just trying to help. It could come to the point where the Naru are just invited into the Chamber of Hearts and asked to heal the world soul, with no one having an idea of what that would mean. If the Naru can lightforge people, is it possible to lightforge a world soul? Would the Naru have to create their own bright empire because it'll take that long to fully corrupt Azeroth? And in the end, can the forces of the light cause a light titan to manifest? And would this light-possessed Azeroth reshape the Great Dark into an image of the light? And would that re-image be any different? Would that just mean the end of life as we know it? But let's start wrapping this up. I'm asserting here that Blizzard is making a story arc that will one day, not today, not tomorrow, but one day, it'll reveal that the light and the void are causing are starting this whole proxy war thing using us as their soldiers. The old gods, the Naru, the Church of Holy Light versus the Twilight Cultists, the champions of Azeroth. They're telling one side to destroy the other because they're not like us. They're trying to stop whatever plans we have. In Babylon 5, these younger races eventually discover that they're all being manipulated into fighting each other for the sake of the Vorlons and the Shadows, and they're fed up. In a grand and violent fashion, they reject the races they looked up to and insist that they're no longer needed. The galaxy has outgrown the need for their guidance. And to cut the story short, the Shadows and the Vorlons, they just leave, and the story arc ends. It's hard to predict if this is actually something we're going to read up on, let alone experience in the game. And personally, I don't care to. Because the cosmic events in the Warcraft universe don't need to be addressed as quickly as all the events that we've experienced in the past 15 years of the World of Warcraft. It's a lot of stuff that's been compressed. I was good with having to beat back a Legion plot every, what, you know, four or five years or so, so I'm definitely good with these looming threats coming from the extremists who represent the Void or the Light. They just don't have to be an immediate threat all the time. The story of Warcraft could use a lot more breathing room for more adventures, more good guys and bad guys that aren't about the end of all things. Ah. But I want to thank you for letting me share some of my crazy thoughts today. So please hit the like button if you enjoyed yourself. Subscribe to the channel for more of this and all things Warcraft. But I'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe, stay happy, and stay breezy. Hello everyone! Last week we did the story of the Western Plaguelands, and as promised, today we're going to deep dive into the story of Scholomans, and we made it a little bit extra special. Now the Plaguelands did not always have this name. It was earned by the devastation that was caused to it. The human Kalfuzad, in order to Lich King, he worked on using his connections, his fortune, the power of illusion, persuasion, sickness and force, to develop and spread the plague across the lands of Lordaeron and establish the Lich King's hold upon Azeroth. All this to weaken the world for another invasion from the Lich King's creators, namely the Burning Legion. When Kelfuzad arrived back in Lordaeron, he did so as a holy man, preaching the hope of a brand new religion. He won over the lower classes by playing on their disillusionment with Lordaeron's government. He proclaimed that he could ease the pain of the downtrodden, give hope to the hopeless and lead the destitute to eternal life. The lies, they came easily to him. He had seen the power of undeath. Now that it was bound to the Lich King, he no longer feared it. He even hungered for the day when it were the cause of the shackles of life and ascend to a greater undead form. 
For the rich, Kelfuzar took a different approach. He enticed nobles and landowners with offers of great power and immortality if they joined his cause. Some voiced concern about what seemed like a people's movement geared toward toppling the established order, but Kelfuzad eased their fears. He said that the lower classes were no threat. They were simply a tool that the privileged could use to destroy their rivals and secure more wealth. As the years passed, Kelfuzad recruited more and more people to his cause. Few truly understood the horrors that awaited them all. Only individuals whom he was certain that he could turn to darkness. They learned the truth about the plague of undeath and what it would do to humanity. In time, Kelfuzad's followers would become known as the Cult of the Damned. The cult's headquarters, they were established in the catacombs beneath an ancient human fortress that was called Skolomance. Now what better way to uncover how these events went down than to follow our adventurer as they come in contact with the spirits still lingering at the school. Hello young man, I'm Eva Sarkov and this is my husband, Lucian. It is a pleasure to make your acquaintance. The pleasure is mine, madam. Might I ask... What is it that you are doing here? Oh, certainly. We were once servants of the House Barav, what is now known as the Scholomance. I was the head maid, and Lucian was Master Barav's butler. We had worked for the Baravs for decades, until... <laughs> until what, Eva? I must know. Oh, it's just so horrible. The House Barav was once full of life, full of splendor. Take a slice of pie, grab a glass of wine, enjoy yourselves. All are welcome at the Barovs. Our chef has prepared an excellent roast pig for dinner. Jandus! Jandus! I was wondering if you could show Pete the one you showed us before. <laughs> you want to see a magic trick? the Barov's primary residence amidst their far-reaching empire. Lucian and I noticed that as the days progressed, the Barovs became depressed, despondent. Bandits have been seen all over Alterac. I think we need to increase security around our borders. Oh, they're probably in league with that damn Blackmore. Have you seen that monster he's trained to fight in his ring? He's up to something, I know it. Our estate, everything we've worked for. We can't be here forever to protect Kaiadaro. Our land! Paranoia and rage often overcame the master and missus. At night, we could hear the Barovs arguing in their chambers. From what we understood, their greed had broken the dam, so to speak. What do you mean? 
I see you wear the garb of the Kirin Tor. I assume you are a mage from Dalaran, then. Tell me, what is it you wanted to speak to me about? Lord Barov, you see, some of my peers would disapprove of some of my studies, the power I sought out, and I think we can help each other. I heard you had your alchemists research the secrets of immortality. I can help you there. All I ask in return for eternal life is that you provide me with your estate to train my acolytes and advance my studies. That is all. We suspect that in order to preserve their fortune and hold of the land well past their lifespan, the Baravs made a deal with a powerful human mage named Kel'Thuzad. From this deal sprang the School of Necromancy, a place which bore the cult of the damned and would become their capital. As each week passed, the House Barav became more and more decrepit. Dark beings began to take residence in the various wings of the house. Upkeep became impossible and disgusting. Why didn't you just leave? And go where? It was all that we knew, all that we had known and all that we would ever know. Eventually, we lost contact with the Baravs and ultimately were separated from the household. We knew not what happened to the other servants, only that there were screams. Tortured screams. Knowing that we had nowhere to go, Lucian and I were forced to hide in our quarters. During the day, when the school was relatively quiet, Lucian would sneak out to scrounge up food and drink. So... What happened? We did this for about six months and watched as the house went through horrifying changes. Foul monsters roamed through the manor at will. Dark cultists populated every inch with various paraphernalia relating to rituals and sacrifices. You have found your way here! Because you are among the few gifted with true vision in a world cursed with blindness. Through our master, all things are possible. His power is without limit and his will unbending. Perhaps you should have studied more. Strip the flesh, harvest the organs, nothing goes to waste. Mix and stir, apply heat. that we could not hide much longer.
didn't think we had any servants left. Now you stay put. The circle of blood is made just for you. No restraints? Just a circle? Restraints? There are things in this world far more restraining than bars and shackles, young master. The undead surrounding us, constantly tormenting us with horrifying acts of depravity. Finally, he came. The doctor is in. He introduced himself as Dr. Thielen Krastinov. We came to know him as the Butcher. Tell me more. We finally understood what the screams were from. The Butcher exposed us to pain that we did not know existed. He used us in countless experiments, attempting to devise a, a plague. The days turned to weeks. We would have died on the first day had it not been for that cruel monster keeping us alive through magical means. This is an atrocity. The Butcher would speak of the blood of the innocents and his dark master, Kirtanos, of how he must appease his master. Finally, the beast was done with his experiments. We had been drained of all life. Our spirits shattered. The sweet embrace of death was upon us, and we welcomed it with open arms. But in his infinite cruelty, the butcher revived us from death's door. We were to be kept alive and thrown to his ravenous ghouls. He left as he watched the fiends devour our flesh. I feel sick. We feel nothing. Our souls remain here, in limbo. We are unable to leave until our remains are found and spirits laid to rest. And so, darkness swept over Skolomance. From within, Kael Fuzad and his cult of the damned, they worked very hard on bringing death to the lands of Lord Ron. Once their plans were put in motion, Prince Arthas followed a very dark path, which eventually led him to the Culling of Strathholm, following Melganus to the cold land of Northrend. And while there, he picked up Frostmourne. Now he too was in the service of the Lich King, fulfilling his grand schemes. Kelfazad's wish of dropping the shackles of life and ascent to a greater undead form, they came true. He became the Lich, while the school of necromancy that continued his operations and heroes were called in to take care of business. Easier said than done though, since the door to Skolomance was not exactly left open. Unless you had someone who could pick a lock, like a rogue or an engineer, or someone actually willing to kill themselves in front of the door, spawn behind it and open it up for the team, you were going to need a skeleton key. Not a cheap quest to complete either. Skeletal fragments from the skeletons at Anderhal. They were taken to Crinkle Goochsteel in Gatchestan, who dared to ask a whopping 15 gold for his service. 15 gold, can you believe it? Only the richest could be heroes in this game. In the fires of Fireplume Ridge, we molded the key, finished it off by slaying a rush to summoner in Anderhal, and with that, we could combat the horrors within Skolomance, bring peace to the spirits of Ava and her husband Lucian. The Butcher, Dr. Tiolan Krastinov, is responsible for the deaths of thousands, and he must be punished. Justice demands retribution. We find him and exact upon him the agony that he has inflicted upon countless of innocence. Once he is destroyed, we burn the remains of the Sarkovs, healing their spirits, but not setting them free quite yet. A great weight has been lifted from their hearts, but our task is far from over. Krastinov's master, Kirtanos, it still lives. 
before we may even face Kirtanos, we must first secure a method in which to summon him. It is said that Jan Disparov stewards the blood of the innocents from Krastanov to Kirtanos. We find her in the sunken catacombs of Skolomans and we strike her down. From her corpse we retrieve Krastanov's bag of horrors. This is just what we needed, the blood of the innocents, the purest of blood, used to appease Krastanov's master. With blood, Kirtanos may be summoned. It is with blood then that Kirtanos must be destroyed. Within the chamber of summoning we find a brazier, upon which we place a drop of our very own blood. Kirtanos comes, he cannot resist. The full fury and wrath of a thousand innocent deaths is unleashed upon him. With its death, a chapter in the horrible tale Skolomans comes to a close. We have earned Lucian and Eva's deepest, everlasting gratitude for bravery. There is, however, much more to be done. Others here are now aware of our brave acts, other spirits that we can see with the spectral essence, a gift imbued with the peace of their own essence. It allows us to communicate with the other lost souls of Seer Darrow. One major reason for doing this questline was actually to gain access to a vendor that sells some awesome patterns. Well, of course, it is pretty cool to see that the spirits of the lost, they're still lost in the past. Some even mention that they're still expecting Uther the Lightbringer to show up, but the Paladin would never accomplish his mission to aid and comfort those here that are suffering from the war. Others, like Magistrate Marduk, are not spared the anguish that memories provide. He is well aware of what happened to Skolomans, of how the cult of the damned infiltrates society and unleashes massive devastation, of how the lich Raz Frostwhisper oversees the school in Kelfuzad's absence and has to be taken care of. This is the being responsible for training all of its dark masters, a lieutenant and favorite pupil of Kelfuzad. He was once a hatch mage of Strongguard, a rogue wizard that never received his formal training from Daladan. When Kelfuzad finally opened up the cult, Rez was amongst the first to join his ranks, knowing that through dark magic he would find immortality. After quickly advancing through the ranks of the cult, it was time for the ritual. At Menethil's gift within Strathholm, he pledged his undying soul to the Lich King himself. Slicing his own throat from ear to ear, smiling as he did, his body collapsed inside the borders of the pentagram. The Lich King stood over the fallen mage and with a single motion, Raz Frostfish the Lich was born. Now taking care of a Lich is rather tricky, considering that you need to destroy their phylactery to truly get rid of them, but perhaps there is another way. Perhaps we can find some way of stripping Raz from his Lich powers altogether and turn him back into a mortal. By going back to the place where he was created, we use the soulbound keepsake to bind his soul to the item. With it, we revert him to a mortal and we strike him down. The head is then returned to the magistrate. Ten thousand souls cry out in unison. We have struck a mortal blow to the scourge and of course their masters. But so, so much more remains to be done within the dark halls of Skolomans. Lord Alexei, Lady Lucia and Yandis Barov. They were overtaken by the darkness, but the two sons, Alexei and Weldon, they managed to avoid spending their eternal damnation within the school. One is still a human, while the other fell to the plague, broke himself free and now operates as a forsaken. They even came face to face once, with Weldon not taking a kill, unable to strike down his own brother, even if he is an undead. He regrets that choice now, money is on their hearts and on their minds. Both of them have not forgotten about the wealth that the family once owned, and both of them have never learned to share. First, they asked adventurers to go into Skolomans and retrieve their family fortune, the deeds to Seer Darrow, Brill, South Shore and Tar Mill. 
It's anyone's guess how they actually plan to claim those areas. But all the same, with their deeds in their possession, they only have one more request. Please, go out and kill my brother, the last of the Broth family. Despite their heads being brought back as proof of demise, neither one of them really died. And with the Mr. Panoria revamp, they left the area altogether to show up during Warlords of Draenor. Here we see them working together as partners in Baroth Industries. They united to plunder the worlds of Draenor's riches. But again, their greed got the better of them and they stabbed each other in the back. Last we know of them is being forced to languish in the abandoned garrison, eternally punished by being a follower for heroes that already moved on. So like I mentioned, Skullamans has seen a couple of changes over time. It went from a 10-man raid into a 5-man dungeon, followed by some change in the Cataclysm, and then a complete revamp with Mr. Pandaria. That changed the layout as well as the story told inside. But in Classic, this massive dungeon, it had three required bosses. Rare's Frost Whisper, Red Ogor, and Dark Master Gantling. Seven to eight optional bosses, and then six bosses required to even summon the final boss, Summon Gantling. So many bosses meant that there were many different paths you could take, as well as many different people that did not feel like doing your optional bosses. One of those could be found right at the start in the Reliquary. The succubus, known as Blood Steward of Kirtonos, was completely optional, but would drop a Blood of Innocence, so you had a resource to summon another optional boss. From the Reliquary, you would go into the Chamber of Summoning, with on the right the option to use this Blood of the Innocent to fight Kirtonos the Herald. You then move forward into the now-called Butch's Sanctum, which opened up the choices. Going down the path on the right, that sends you through a crypt-like area, what they now use for the Halls of Illusions, with the optional boss Jendis Baroth waiting at the end. The daughter of the Baroth family was once an Archmage of Dalaran and a powerful illusionist, able to create copies of herself indistinguishable from her real form. This way, her enemies had no way of tracking her down, skills that she could still utilize in combat. She drops a journal, full with rantings and ravings about the undead. Towards the end of the book is what appears to be a tailoring pattern for the creation of a bag. This taught tailors how to make felcloth bags, designed specifically once upon a time to hold your soul shards. I don't remember much from classic Solomans, but I do remember that going through this area was really really painful. Going through the path straight ahead of you, that would send you through the Great Ossuary, where they're busy experimenting with the plague hatchlings. Red Ogor was waiting down below, while paladins or shamans with their quest, they could use this area to summon the optional boss, Death Knight Dark Reaver. He himself was once a celebrated paladin, but was seduced by the call of the Lich King. Now he threatens to twist the spirit realm to do his own bidding, and he must be stopped, which rewarded shamans with a pretty sweet helmet. Paladins were more concerned about his now corrupted steed. After a very lengthy questline, they could reclaim the spirit and earn the epic charger. Going through the path on the left, that takes you into the viewing room, where there used to be two paths you could take, rather than just one. The path we take now straight ahead, that used to lead into the laboratory, where the fight against Raz Frost Whisper played out. Warlocks could also use the laboratory as part of their mount quest, unleash a little imp to make a parchment. Well, you could also summon the optional boss Cormac here. This is a massive ogre necromancer required for the dungeon set 2 questline, also known as tier 0.5. In the viewing room itself, we see the optional boss Vectus giving a lecture to his board students. He's the one who developed the Plague Dragonflight by experimenting and messing around with X, taken out of Blackrock Spire. His partner next to him might look familiar for those who have done the Battle of Arrowshire questline. This is the optional boss Marduk Blackpool, who corrupted the spirit of Joseph Repov, sealing the human's defeat. 
The door on the left, that's the one that leads to the headmaster's study, and our final boss required for the instance, but he doesn't show up until you've cleared all six rooms, each of them filled with an individual boss. There's the Ravenian, one of Kelfusad's mightiest agents, ready to devour those students who show any sign of weakness. There's Lorekeeper Polkeld, the High Elf Instructor Militia, the spirits of Lady Ilusha Barov, the Death Knight Lord Alexei Barov, and Dr. Tiolan Krestinov, aka the Butcher. School is in session. It's a good thing that we need to clear out the rooms before engaging the Dark Master Gantling, the Headmaster here appointed by Kelfusad himself. The man loves to teleport random party members into one of the side chambers, where then they'll have to fight their own way out. A massive, absolutely massive dungeon with a lot of different paths, a lot of different encounters. But with Mr. Pandaria, they decided to streamline this a whole lot more. They brought the encounters down to a total of 5 and sealed off any of the side paths. A talking skull lets us know that he and his family fell victim to this place what seems like ages ago. Let their fate serve as a warning to those who would meddle in necromancy. It wants our aid in lifting the curse that has befallen upon Skolomans to give Darkmaster Gentling his final death. While we go through the place, we might as well make sure to destroy the necromantic knowledge that they've gathered. Not four deeds this time around, instead four tomes are destroyed. In the shadow of the light, Kelfuzad's deep knowledge, forbidden rites, and the dark grimoire. Individuals seeking to master the powers of undeath, they know well of Skolomans, the infamous school of necromancy, located in the dark and foreboding crypts beneath Seer Darrow. In recent years, several of the instructors have changed, but the institution it remains under the control of Darkmaster Gantling, a particularly sadistic and insidious practitioner of necromantic magic. The first boss, Instructor Chillheart, she teaches the course Introduction to the Dark Arts. Class is now in session. She journeyed all the way from Northrend to teach aspiring necromancers discipline, harshly punishing those who disappoint her. She commands the icy chill of the north and masterfully uses Skolomancer's libraries to deadly effect. As you may know now, liches are not that easy to kill. Unless, of course, they're dumb enough to keep the phylactery in the same room. Next is Yandis Barov, teaching the course Advanced Illusions. Barov's spirit lurked in the recesses of Skolomans for years, but now she's taken a much more active role in educating the next generation of Magi. Her vast knowledge of illusions has made her both a valued educator and a dangerous opponent to anyone foolish enough to draw her ire. She is still a big fan of making copies of herself. Let's see if we can give her a final death. <laughs> In the Chamber of Summoning, we run into an old friend, Lillian Voss. Recently, she's been resurrected by the Valkyr in Order of Sylvanas, and she was offered a position amongst the Forsaken. But Lillian wasn't down with being an undead. She tried to go home to her father, a high priest of the Scarlet Crusade. The Crusaders are not too fond of the undead, so her father tried to have her killed. Instead, it was she who murdered him and pursued a path away from the Forsaken, fighting against Crusaders and Necromancers alike. We actually helped her with that within the monastery. We also got her some beautiful rune blades, which she now points at the Dark Master. Run, necromancer! Your life ends once I catch my breath. Come, Voss. Your fate awaits you. Enter Redogor for the course Reanimation 101. Redogor was thought to be destroyed in Anderhal. 
but Gandling immediately began preparations to reanimate the clattering terror so he could guard against intruders. The Dark Master sought to make Redogor more ferocious than ever, imbuing him with an insatiable desire to harvest raw materials from his enemies. We can use the bone piles in the room to protect ourselves from his most devastating attacks. Further ahead, within the Butcher's Sanctum, good old Doctor Teol and Krastanov can still, on occasion, make an appearance. He even drops his bag of hotters, which you can use to perform quick surgery on yourself. But we can clearly see that his students are still hard at work. They're pursuing his studies. Did you forget, girl? I am the Dark Master. I command the undead. I won't let you... Meanwhile, Lillian is having a little bit of trouble dealing with the Dark Master. His mastery over the undead, it splits her soul from her body and it turns her lovely rune blades against us. Thankfully, we are able to hit her hard enough, put her soul back where it belongs and she regains control. What? Die, necromancer! The bones! Oh, you wretch! Leave me to die alone, please. Eternal death would not be your fate. Instead, we would see Lillian pop up many times in the future. Most recently, she's been helping out the Horde with their war campaign and guiding people into undeath. Professor Snape, I mean Professor Slate, he's in the middle of a lecture as we barge into the viewing room. On his desk, we can find a polyformic acid potion. Its results are a little bit unpredictable, but when lucky enough, it does give us a chance to deal additional nature damage to the Dark Master and his minions. If you haven't come to study, school is in session. Dark Master Gandling, with his course Advanced Studies. The recent defeat in Anderhal, it has put Dark Master Gandling in the foulest of moods. More than ever, all students of Scholomans are advised to impress him at every turn. Pupils who dissatisfy the Headmaster, they will be removed from class to perform lab work, or they become the lab work. Still a big fan of sending random enemies away. Let's make that random talking skull very happy and lift the curse of Scholomans. Class. Dismissed. Would you look at that? Turns out that the skull was Lord Alexei Barov all along. He owes us a debt, one which he can never repay. But we do have his thanks for lifting the curse off of his family. Kelfuzad, the Lich King, and now Dark Master Gentling. All of them are dead. Perhaps now he too can find some semblance of peace. Fast forward to the Legion time period, and once again, Skolomance is besieged by darkness, this time in the form of Alternate Gul'dan and his Shadow Council. The Orc Warlock plans to perform a powerful ritual that will bring all opposition to their knees. He is going to need some powerful artifacts to accomplish that, one of them being the Book of Medivh, the same book that Kalfuzad once upon a time, he used it to summon Archimond into the world. No one really knew what happened to the book afterwards, but it seems like Kalfuzad entrusted it here within Skolomance, the place where he formed the Cult of the Damned. The book containing knowledge from the Corrupted Guardian is once again needed by the Legion, a great bargaining chip for the Warlocks that are actually after the Scepter of Sargeras and the need to find some way to earn Gul'dan's trust. They would murder the opposition and steal the book from their broken bodies, leaving Skolomans and his dark practices behind while pursuing their legendary artifact which they would wield in the war against the Legion. And there ends the story of the School of Necromancy, the story of Skolomans for the moment. But since we have taken care of business like three times already and they're still carrying on with their obsession for own death, 
I'm sure that one day it will rear its decrepit head once again and play its part in the story. Before we close off the video, I do have a couple of people that I want to thank for helping bring this story to life. Kalis, of course, with her amazing machinima. Taliesin, Evatel and Latomi lending their voices to the characters. Honestly, I'm blown away by the result and so happy that the video is finally out. Finally, there's also Wow Musicable, who had an awesome recording of old school Skolomans up on the YouTube channel and was kind enough to let me use the recordings. It would have been a whole lot more difficult to show what I was talking about without them. Links to their stuff in the description down below. As for me, you could decide to subscribe, you could also like the video, maybe even leave a comment. Who knows what you want to do today, possibilities are endless. So for now, thank you very much for watching everyone, and until next time, see ya! Hello guys, this is Doron's Movies and today I will be talking about the abominations, what they are, what they are made of and some theories. So without further ado, let's get into the lore. Abominations have been in the game since Warcraft 3 and were always unique, scary and even cute, as twisted as that sounds. Now, there are many different types of abominations and monstrosities and how they're created is as bad as you might think, if not even worse. The first abominations were created in the catacombs of Skolomance by the fallen mage of Dalaran, Keltizad and his terrible cult of the damned. They unearthed corpses, hacked them apart and then pieced them together to serve the scourge in the new war effort. The process is very complex and horrific. The necromancers utilize multiple bodies in all sorts of conditions, utilizing blood and embalming fluids to preserve the parts and to keep them functioning. Then they split them up and stitch them together for their purpose, which is generally war. 
They also use a heart in order to pump the sludge that drives their bodies. Now, after the physical part is done, now they need a brain to control this mindless individual. As this creation process causes significant brain damage, generally the creators search for someone smart to begin with. In one example, an undead required the brain of an alliance leader, which would be more intelligent than the average grunt. Once the brain is in place, inside the body, they leave the reptilian nervous system while removing the higher cognitive functions. The reason for this is so that the creation doesn't develop its own independence as well as to not remember who it originally was. So the final product is a massive scary flesh creature with multiple limbs and very below average intelligence. Abominations are often compared with ogres in terms of size, strength and intelligence, albeit ogres on occasion can can be very smart. Now, their service depends, they can either be guards, cannon fodder or commanders. In the case of commanders, it isn't really their intelligence and strategic mind and wit, but just their size and the intimidation factor in the battlefield. The original abominations were a massive part of the Scourge army, although the Forsaken continued and still use and create abominations. The Scourge had many different types of projects, starting with abominations formed mainly from fallen humans. However, they would decide to go much further, creating flesh beasts, much larger and more horrific creations, as well as flesh titans. Some of these were built from the dead storm giants in Northrend, which were very massive to begin with, but the the story of the Flesh Titan Thaddeus in Extremis is much eerier. This massive monstrosity was actually constructed from the bodies of the fallen women and children harvested by the Scourge. This is fairly obvious by the terrible heartbreaking screams during the fight. So the point is that Scourge took this much much further and there was really just no limit to their cruelty as long as their power increased. However, the Forsaken to this day utilize and create abominations. Until recently they were mainly formed in the Apothecarium and Undercity, rumored to be done from war prisoners as well as fallen enemies and some even say allies. However, their practice is fairly transparent as you can constantly see tables with body parts and all sorts of machinery and tools that would be required for this horrific process. There is even a fan theory that the abominations are actually created from children, which would explain their seemingly blissful nature. They often mention playtime and the new toys and are seemingly childish, as terrible as that sounds. However, this could just be a part of their simple mind. As explained previously, a big part of their intelligence is lost when these monstrosities are formed. Although, if true and if done by Sylvanas, this would definitely be a serious crime which would just pile on her seemingly endless list. Still, the Abominations are one of the most powerful undead creatures as they are massive, fearless and extremely resilient. They even constantly rot and spread disease, but it doesn't really do much to them. This of course doesn't hurt the Forsaken as they are undead as well, but just being close to one can be very deadly for a living being. If the creature doesn't damage him, just his mere presence will. The Abomination's limited brains are also very useful for the undead as they can easily be controlled and they never really think about rebelling or becoming independent or starting some sort of revolution, even though there were a few very isolated cases. So 
The answer to the question of what they're made from is as bad as it sounds and their creation process is one of the worst in World of Warcraft and absolutely sickening. However, the abominations became a significant part of the fantasy universe, easily recognizable and even likable to an extent. See you next time. In today's episode of the Villain's Corner, we'll be going over Murlocs, one of WoW's most prominent and iconic species of villains that shows up in nearly every single expansion in the game. Murlocs themselves are an intelligent humanoid species with their own language, and are more than capable of using tools and even congregate into large groups. All of these things would point to an eventual advanced civilization, if it wasn't for the fact that Murlocs have no interest in that. Clopper Whizbang from the Explorers League did a study on Murlocs and found while they are somewhat intelligent, if a little stupid when compared to other sentient races, the reason why they're so primitive is because they have no curiosity when it comes to new technologies, which is not the norm when it comes to more advanced species. So basically, they're just kinda dumb and very not curious about the world. The Murlocs are also a somewhat violent race, and have many different reasons for why they attack people. One of the reasons is that they worship basically anything that is stronger than them. So if there's a gigantic shark that beats some of them in battle, they might worship it as their god, until a bigger sea creature comes along and kills that shark, in which case that new sea creature will be their new god. In Warcraft 3, a group of Murlocs worshipped a Naga Sea Witch, who was a powerful spellcaster and the Murlocs abducted Vol'jin's father and sacrificed him to the Sea Witch, and the Murlocs were almost successful in completely wiping out the Darkspear tribe, until Thrall came in and saved the day with his band of orcs. So Murlocs have played pretty important roles in WoW's lore, but there aren't very many notable singular Murlocs. Probably one of the more infamous Murlocs is Old Murkai, who is an elite Murloc on the shores of Westfall, who was the objective of a low-level kill quest, and surrounded by other murlocs, which meant he caused the death of a lot of low-level players. The final boss of the Wailing Caverns dungeon was a murloc named Mutinus the Devourer. After clearing the dungeon, you can talk to one of the druids at the entrance in order to perform a ritual to cleanse the caverns of the Nightmare, where you have to fight the worst nightmare of the druid Narlex, and it turned out his worst nightmare was murlocs. In another dungeon, located in the Black Fathom Deeps, was a murloc named Galihast who heard whispers from the old gods and decided, man, old gods sure are strong, I should totally worship them, and then went into a cave full of twilight hammer cultists, and then just started killing all of them with his twin swords. And the twilight cultists were so impressed by both his devotion to the old gods and his brutality that they allowed him to stay. And he built his own shrine in a cave off to the side, in order to offer his own sacrifices and receive blessings from the ominous presence in the ruins. But then later on, a faceless one named Subjugator Korul was summoned by the Twilight Hammer and sent into the cave to kill everything that wasn't under their direct control, which included the Wild Murloc. So the faceless one killed Galahast and then took control over his Murlocs, while hanging up Galahast's body as proof of his dominance over the other Murlocs. And then there's Captain Cookie, a murloc who became the captain of the Defy's Juggernaut, a gigantic ship located in the Deadmines. Now, the way Cookie became captain of the ship was one day, after the previous captain was killed, he decided to start calling himself the new captain, and anyone who disagreed with him came down with a mysterious but severe case of food poisoning. After adventurers go into the Deadmines and kill everyone in there, 
Captain Cookie manages to escape and went to Talador and is the inventor of the Legion Chili food item from Warlords of Draenor. And for the most part, these are all of the named villain murlocs in the game. There are a few murlocs that are much more friendly, like Murky and Sir Finley Murgleton, a murloc from the Explorers League who's even able to speak common, but this is a villain-centric series, so we won't be talking about those two. Alright, and that's it for the Villains Corner on Murlocs. As always, I'd like to thank Rachel for doing the amazing drawings you see in this video. If you want to check out her work, I'll have her Twitter and other websites linked in the video description. Rachel even has commissions open if you want your characters drawn in a Villains Corner style. So make sure to check that out. And if you have an idea for a future Villains Corner video, I'd love to hear about it down in the comments. Man, I really like that analogy that Soul used at the beginning. The one where he brought up Babylon 5 and the war between the Vorlons and the Shadows. I can totally see that something like that is happening in the Warcraft universe. Also, I really love the story of the Western Plaguelands, and in this case, the story of Scholomance, which has always been one of my favorite vanilla dungeons. All the story behind it, the bosses, the layout, everything, the high-end dungeons were always favorites of mine. Strathorn, Sholomans, the Upper Blackrock Spire, the not-so-high Blackrock Depth has always been my very favorite dungeon in the game, has stayed so until this day, and I don't think that there's ever going to be a dungeon of that magnitude again. And for the sheer size of it, that um, lifts BRD up at least two notches in ranking, if that's possible. So thank you for the story of Scholomance to Noble87. Thank you to Charm for another Tales of the Loa, in this case Torga, which when I came there the first time, to Torga's resting place in Nazmir, I was really, really sad. But again, that's life. And uh, you know the fate of Torga in the end when you play through the zone. I'm not going to reveal it here because there are still people on the Alliance side that might want to choose to play a Horde tune and then I would spoil it for them and that wouldn't be nice. Thank you for a little gruesome episode from Doran's movies about the abominations. I was debating whether to put it in, but in the end the content prevailed and I thought, okay, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's on the edge, let's put it that way, but it's still okay. And we know that Blizzard has both visually and audibly, like Doran mentioned, played with that. So there's nothing new. It's just a little more condensed and a little more um, pointed at various aspects of it. Um, I'm not going to go any further into it, but I think you know what I'm getting at. 
And last but not least, thank you to Hero Maridex for pointing out some of the more villainous named Murloc bosses, mobs, whatever. We all know that, that Murlocs have a special place in our hearts, both on the evil and on the good side. So I'm going to just leave it at that. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, contributors. And like I said at the beginning, thank you, listeners, for tuning in and listening to the content we provide. So until next time, in episode 103, which should be out on the day of the classic launch, which is Monday, not Tuesday, because we have the global launch event again which we had with BFA, so it's a repeat of that. Until next time, everyone. Bye. I have no time for games. Aw, come on, Sylvanas. <laughs> I hope you have enjoyed your time with the Forsaken of Cops Run Radio this episode. Should you have an idea for a little segment of your own, I would love for you to become part of the cast. Or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at copsrunradiomail at gmail.com or on Twitter at copsrunradio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash copsrunradio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Corpse Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music and sound effects are used with permission. Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time.